We'll turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And today we'll be looking at verses 37 through 40. Psalm 119, as we've said, is the longest chapter in the Bible. And every bit of it is a celebration of God's law. 176 verses that tell us about the benefits of God's law and what our mindset should be toward it. And as we go through this series, each week we're looking at a part of Psalm 119. We're learning what the psalmist is specifically telling us about God's law and how we can apply that to our lives. But then we're also zooming out to kind of see larger principles about God's law from all of Scripture. So each week we're identifying another principle about God's law, and then we're looking at a specific law as well each week. And often that's one of the case laws. We're learning how those specific laws should be applied in our lives today. Well, this morning, we'll start with verses 37 through 40 of Psalm 119. Follow along as I read these verses. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Well, verse 37 says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways. What are the worthless things that the psalmist wants to turn his eyes away from? A number of Bible translations translate that as vanity. It's empty things, things that have no transcendent value, no lasting or eternal value. These are the things that John calls the things that are in the world. Thomas Manton says these things are called vanity because they have no solid happiness in them and do so easily fade and perish. And the psalmist asks God to turn his eyes away from these things. The eyes are the gateway to the soul in many ways. We see things and we grow to want those things. Satan tempted Eve and Genesis 3 says that Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise and so she took of its fruit and ate. Job, as he writes, recognizing the issue that our eyes can be, says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. He was intentional about what he allowed his eyes to gaze on, and so should we. If we're not intentional, then we'll just kind of simply drift along with our natural desires, like a boat that's allowed to just simply kind of float down the stream without any restraint or direction. And that's not what we want for our souls and our natural sinful desires. Well, the psalmist asks God for life. So put to death my natural desires, what my eyes naturally gravitate toward, and give me life, true spiritual life. Put sin to death, bring godly desires to life. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and faithful come on their journey to a town called Vanity, which all year long has a fair going on, which is called Vanity Fair. And Bunyan says that it's called this because the town where it is kept is lighter than vanity. 
and also because all that is there sold or that comes there is vanity. This fair, according to the story, was started thousands of years ago by Beelzebub and Apollyon and Legion, the enemies of all pilgrims who seek the celestial city. And the design was to tempt and distract and derail them in their journey. Well, as they came into town, Christian and Faithful faced mocking, reproaches, because their clothes were so different, and they spoke so differently. But Christian and Faithful also were not interested in what was on offer in Vanity Fair. Bunyan says that they cared not so much as to look upon them. And if they called upon them to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and look upwards, signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. So when Bunyan says that Christian and Faithful cried, Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity, he's referencing Psalm 119, verse 37. So this story is illustrating exactly what we're seeing here in the psalm. Well, what is it that enables us or allows us to turn our eyes away from worthless things? Well, it's when we have something more worthwhile to turn our eyes to. What's more worthwhile? Well, the greatest thing that we can see is the beauty of Christ. And even in the Old Testament, Isaiah hinted at this when he said in chapter 33, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Moving on to verse 38, the psalmist says, Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. And here the psalmist is asking God for what God has said he will do. He asks that God will carry through on his promise. And it's not any one particular promise here, apparently. It's rather the entire word of God. You could maybe think of it this way. The whole psalm is about God's law, which is God's word. God's word, or his law, is the expression of who he is. It's, it's the foundational reality that our world is built on. It describes the truth that for us is unavoidable and essential. So when the psalmist asks that God would be true to his word, this is something that God delights to do. He's simply being true to himself because his word is an expression of who he is. God commits himself to us freely, voluntarily, certainly. He will not fail to fulfill what he has promised. We are called to have faith in God, like the psalmist does. And so Manton writes, as faith without the promises is nothing but groundless and fruitless conceit, so the promises yield us no comfort without faith. Both have to be there, the promise and the faith. And this is simply saying the same thing that the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4 when he's talking about the generation of Israelites that wandered in the wilderness. They didn't get to enter the promised land. Why? Because they failed to have faith. They didn't trust God and his promise to them. So the author explains there in Hebrews 4 too, the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. A proper faith in God and his word goes along with what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. And that's what the psalmist says in the back half of this verse, that you may be feared. 
Charles Bridges points out, he says, that if, as Scripture teaches, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Psalm 111, and a treasure, Isaiah 33, and a strong confidence, Proverbs 14, and a fountain of life, Proverbs 14 again, then how wise and how rich and how safe and how happy is the person who's devoted to the fear of the Lord. Verse 39, the psalmist writes, Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Well, what are these reproaches? They're the attacks that come from those who are not committed to God's word or God's rules. The mocking, the scorn, the condemnation, the condescension. It's the media laughing at Christian views or blaming Christians for the conflict and difficulties in our culture. But more than that, it's the coworker, or the neighbor or the person who looks down on you, who throws scripture back in your face and says, doesn't the Bible say you're not supposed to judge? But here's the thing. When you face that kind of thing, you're not alone. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Think about what this is saying. First of all, those who came before you faced the same thing. The prophets who were before you faced this too. Second, it brings blessing, Jesus says. You're blessed when others revile you. You're blessed when you face reproaches. Third, you'll be rewarded. Jesus says your reward is great in heaven. Now, that's delayed gratification, to be sure, but no less real, no less meaningful. And also notice that Jesus, too, was reproached. The author of Hebrews tells you, when you face reproaches, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. There's another scene in Pilgrim's Progress that fits with this text here as well. As Christian is on the way, he faces opposition from Apollyon, a hideous dragon-like monster. And Apollyon tries to defeat Christian. He accuses Christian of having been unfaithful to the prince of the celestial city. He recounts how Christian almost drowned in the slew of despond, how he tried to get rid of his burden in all the wrong ways, how he fell asleep and lost his scroll, how he almost turned back at the sight of the lions. And here's how Christian responds to that. Bunyan writes, all this is true, and much more, which you have left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides, these infirmities possessed me in your country. For there I sucked them in and have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon of my prince. And as Apollyon hurled those fiery darts at Christian, Christian was finally able to fight them off. And he quotes Romans 8:37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now, notice how Christian was able to defeat the reproaches of Apollyon. He admitted his sins. He received the mercy and forgiveness of Christ. 
And he recognized that his victory came through the love of God shown to him in Christ. It's the gospel that gives him the victory. Considering these reproaches, you know, having the approval of the world is a strong temptation because none of us really want to be outsiders. We don't want to be rejected. We want to be accepted by the world. We don't want to say things that might offend someone, but we need to remember what Thomas Manton reminds us of. Peace of conscience is better than the applause of the world. The psalmist says in this verse that your rules are good. Some versions translate the word rules as judgments. And that's a reminder that one thing the law of God does is that it makes judgments on us, on our words and our actions, but also on our thoughts and intents. So the author of Hebrews tells us the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And as the psalmist says, that is good. Your rules are good. God's law makes good judgments. God's law divides. It calls certain things good and other things evil. Remember that when the reproaches come, the law of God judges and it is good. Verse 40 says, Behold, I long for your precepts and in your righteousness give me life. As we've seen before, even this morning in verse 37, God is the one who gives life, spiritual life. Here we see that life and righteousness are connected. God's law shows us the way of righteousness, and that's the way of life. For us sinners, it's not the way to life, but it is the way of life. It's a way that brings blessing. It's a way that guides life as God designed it. The life God intends his people to live. God gives us his righteousness by faith in Christ. And that's what gives us life. Christ gives us life by his spirit. And he gives the spirit without measure. He's not skimpy with the gift of the spirit. It's like taking water from the ocean. You're not diminishing the supply when you take out what you need. It's like receiving the benefit of sunlight. The sun is not lessened by your using its brightness and warmth. The supply is endless. And the psalmist says, too, that he longs for God's precepts. That's a good thing to desire. You know, it's interesting that a lot of people say they desire holiness but they don't desire God's law. They like the idea of being holy. But when it comes right down to it, they don't want to submit to God's law. They wish for holiness in the abstract, but the reality is they hate it in its concrete form. I want to be holy, but I don't accept all of God's law. 
Rather, we need to do the daily difficult work of rooting out disobedience and inconformity in our lives. We need to tend to the desires of our heart. Develop the longing for God's precepts. It doesn't come easy. What comes easy are the desires for worldly things. The desires that we really should be getting rid of. Manson describes it this way. He says, a strange plant, and by strange he means one that's imported in. A strange plant needs more care than a native of the soil. Worldly desires, like a nettle, breed of their own accord. But spiritual desires need a great deal of cultivating. Worldly desires are like weeds. They don't need any encouragement to grow. But the desires for God's law need constant tending and encouragement. If you don't long for God's laws, then do the gardening work in your soul. Dig out the weeds by the root. Plant the seed of God's law by learning it. Feed it and water it through prayer and study. Give it sunlight and warmth of spending time in worship and fellowship with God's people. Well, those are hopefully challenging and encouraging words from Psalm 119 this morning. And as we talk about the particular principle of God's law that we want to see, here's the one that I want you to look at this morning. The law of God applies to all of life, including social, political, and civic life. The law of God applies to all of life, including social, political, and civic life. Now, We've talked about this previously in this series, and we will come back to this idea again in the future, because this is really important. And this morning, what I want to try to do is give you just a big picture overview or review of this idea of law and authority. God's word is his law. Think back with me to creation. Right away, as the Bible opens, we read, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And this continues with the rest of creation. And God said, and there was. And God said, and there was. God speaks, and reality comes into existence. And this includes God's law. God's law determines the nature and reality of all existence. Think of physical laws for a moment. And the obvious example that we like to use, and it's a good one, is the law of gravity. When God created the world, he created it with the law of gravity in place. Long before Isaac Newton was sitting in his mother's garden and watched an apple fall, and formulated the law of gravity, gravity was there. That law was there. It was functioning. It ruled. No one escaped it. That law was in force from creation because God spoke it into existence. And God's word is law. If Adam in the Garden of Eden threw a rock up into the air, What happened to the rock? It fell back to the earth because of God's law. God's moral laws were present from creation too. Right and wrong have not changed since the Garden of Eden. God spoke creation into existence and his law, his moral law, had always been part of it. 
So when the Bible speaks of God's law, it means more than just the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. It even means more than all of the ceremonial laws and the civil laws that God revealed to Israel. The prophets use this word, Torah, law, to refer to their own prophecies that are inspired by God. It doesn't have to be specific legal language in order to be law as the Bible uses that term. If the statement comes from God, it's law. If we're talking about the rules by which God ordered the universe to operate, that's his law. Law applies to everything that God has said or determined. Now, where does the civil government fit into this discussion of law. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. The civil government is instituted by God in order to administer his laws to the nations. And Romans 13 is just one of the classic passages that talks about the civil government and our relationship to it. We'll read it, and then I want to point out several basic points to you while you have it open in front of you, okay? Romans 13, verses 1 through 6, and here's what it says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Well, there's a lot to talk about here, but I'm going to keep it concise and briefly give you three or four things to take note of from this passage. First of all, civil government is instituted by God. There is no authority except from God. So this is God's idea. And since it is God who establishes the very idea of civil government, God is the one who sets the rules. He sets the standard. He defines it. Second, because God is the creator of civil government and law, he gets to say what civil government does and what it doesn't do. He sets its limits. So, for example, when Jesus was asked about paying taxes, he pointed out the image on the coin, and he said, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. Now, notice what Jesus was doing there. He asserts that Caesar's power is limited. Caesar claimed to be Lord. Jesus says no. Caesar has real power, delegated by God, but only certain things belong to Caesar. His authority is limited by God's design. 
and, Jesus says, that God is superior to Caesar. Okay, the coin belongs to Caesar, and you know that because it bears his image. So what belongs to God? Well, what bears his image? Caesar does. So Caesar belongs to God. You do. So you belong to God. And if you belong to God, that means you do not belong to the state. You are not Caesar's. The state may not claim ultimate authority over you. And third, God says that civil rulers are his servants and ministers. These words are important. The word servant is the word deacon. And the word minister is the word from which we get our word liturgy. These are words that we're used to finding in the context of the church, of those who serve God in the church. But God says that civil rulers are his servants and ministers. What that means is, just like pastors and deacons don't make up rules for the church, they don't just do their own thing, but instead they simply represent God as God has commanded, so too the civil magistrate is to serve God by carrying out his role as God has commanded. So don't miss this point. The civil ruler represents God. That means he's responsible to be faithful to God's rules, God's wishes, God's commands. And finally, what we've observed about Romans 13 here means necessarily that the state has no independent power of its own. It is to serve God with power delegated, determined, and limited by God. And yet, we all know that oftentimes the state oversteps its bounds. It claims authority that God has not given to it. So the next thing I want you to see is that every civil government has a God. And that God is seen in its law. So, for example, if a society values human reason above everything else, then man will attempt to use reason to legislate what makes rational sense to them. What is right or good? Well, whatever man reasons is best for them. If a society values science above everything else, then the scientists will be the ones who set the rules. So when the chief science officer says, mask up and get your vaccine, the power of the state then gets enlisted to enforce this law because it's what the scientists view as righteous or good. If a society values democracy above everything else, then vox populi vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. Whatever we all decide becomes law. What the people say goes. It doesn't matter what it is or what combination of them it is, but whatever gods, whatever are the gods of the society, that's where the authority for law and government rests. And of course, as we've seen, God is the one who designed civil government and law, and so it's 
his authority that civil government rightly is to rest on. Anything else is usurping authority from God. Now, does this idea that comes out of the Bible really only apply to Israel as a nation? Or does that still apply in New Testament times? Does it apply to foreign nations in the Old Testament? Does it apply to us today? Well, in the Old Testament, even foreign powers were seen as servants of God and his will. You can see it, for example, in the story of Pharaoh. Or take the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a Babylonian king. He's been blessed by God. He has a great kingdom. But he became proud and he took credit for it himself. So what did God do? God sent a madness on him and he became like an animal. And that lasted until Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven and he blessed God and praised and honored him. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized that the Lord's dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's what he said. And no one can stay God's hand or question him. Nebuchadnezzar saw that his own dominion was under the dominion of God. And he said that all of God's works are just and right. Why did God judge and humble Nebuchadnezzar? Because Nebuchadnezzar, even though he was not an Israelite king, was still accountable to God's law. God's standard. When God judged Nebuchadnezzar, what basis did he judge on? What standard did God use? His law. And Nebuchadnezzar came to admit that God was just and righteous. Same thing's true in the New Testament and today as well. Like in the early church, what was the issue for the early church? The issue with the early church is the conflict with Rome. Rome claimed lordship and sovereignty for itself. But the church refused. And they said, no, Jesus is Lord. See, if Caesar is Lord, then the church is subject to him. But if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is accountable to serve as Christ's minister. And Paul says, Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that not Caesar, but Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isaiah 33, I think, sums up this idea very well. In verse 22, it says, The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Well, not only does the law or the government reveal the God of the system, but that God determines what the standard will then be for the system. By what standard will judgments be made? By what standard will law be given? If we return to the picture of the physical laws of the universe, we don't want engineers designing bridges according to some made-up diversity, equity, and inclusion standard. Right? We want them to use the physical laws of the universe as it really is. Don't ignore gravity. Don't ignore load-bearing capacity. Don't ignore density and tensile strength and all that. In other words, there's a real-world accountability 
for the engineer who builds the bridge. If he uses the wrong standard, bridges collapse. If he uses the wrong standard, people get hurt. But what about something entirely different? What about, for example, gender theory? Well, if we make up standards like diversity, equity, and inclusion, or if people just use whatever internal standard of how they feel or whatever gender they want to be, what happens then? Well, according to scripture, that's going against the world as it really is. In other words, the world as God designed it, as God has given it in his law. And as much as our society wants to deny it, there is a real-world accountability here, too. If we use the wrong standard, people get hurt. In the Bible, the civil magistrate is called to use God's standard. Let me give you an example. Scripture says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. That's Psalm 97. And we read that the king, by justice, establishes the land, Proverbs 29, and the king's throne is established by righteousness, Proverbs 16. You put that all together, what that means is the throne of the king is to be like the throne of God ruling by the same standard. And what's the standard? It's the law of God. And God will hold every civil magistrate accountable for whether or not they upheld God's law. We like to pretend that the state is somehow neutral, but that cannot be the case. The state rules according to some standard. And whatever that standard is reveals what God it serves. In Leviticus 18, God gives a number of very specific laws for his people, but then he says this. He says, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, all the things that he's just forbidden. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. We're talking about Gentile nations. By what standard did God judge those nations? By the standard of his law. They were punished for their violations of God's law. These are not Israelites. These are other nations. And the standard God holds them to is his law. If we think that God is, for some reason, holding us to a different standard today, we're kidding ourselves. And as we've seen before, Psalm 2 makes this clear. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the voice changes now. It's the king 
is actually Jesus who is speaking and says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, addressing the kings of the earth now. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The kings of the earth, all the civil rulers, are warned to serve the Lord. All civil rulers, his ministers and his deacons, are held to this standard. There's a lot more that I'd like to cover here before we look at one particular law, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize some things. And then we'll come back to them at some point in the future. First, the basic moral statement of God's law is the Ten Commandments. So the ethics of any civil government should embody those commandments. And because these ethics are universal, they're not supposed to be restricted to any one particular aspect of life. It applies to all of life, including all that is overseen by the civil ruler. God is the king over all of life. His standard applies everywhere. Second, what does that ethic of the Ten Commandments look like in daily life? How do we work it out into all the, the nooks and crannies, of the, the challenges and the unforeseen circumstances that come up in life? Well, that's where the civil law comes in, the case laws. They are there in Scripture to illustrate for us how to implement the Ten Commandments throughout all of life. Third thing, we should remember that the gospel is present in the law. In seed form, the gospel is present. It's present in the moral law because that's the standard of righteousness. It's the same standard of righteousness that is met in the righteousness that we receive from Christ by faith in the gospel. The gospel is present in the civil law because the penalties of the civil law embody things like restitution and restoration. These are things that the gospel accomplishes. And the gospel is present in the ceremonial law because all of those aspects of the ceremonial law, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the festivals, they're all pointing us to Christ and his work on our behalf. So the gospel is present, at least in seed form, in the law. Now, with those little brief kind of comments, let's move to the specific law that we want to look at this morning. And here's the law that I want us to look at. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And once we take a brief look at it, then we're going to take a look at a case law that illustrates it and then how that gets applied in the New Testament. And I'm just going to be pretty brief and concise with all of this. Okay, the Eighth Commandment says, You shall not steal. You shall not steal. The first thing to notice is what the commandment does, both negatively and positively. Negatively, it protects private property from theft. So, crimes committed against property must be punished. Positively, 
this command actually establishes the right of private property. See, if there's no right of private property, then theft wouldn't be theft. So here we see that the very idea of private property is established by God. The second thing to see is that if the right of private property comes from God, then it does not come from the state. The state cannot give you the right to own things. And the state has no jurisdiction to say that you can't own things. The authority does not belong to the state. The state has been given the authority to adjudicate disputes about property, because that authority is delegated by God, but the very right of ownership comes directly from God. The third thing to notice is that since this law comes from God, any violation of it is actually a sin against God. So, for example, when David steals Uriah's wife, David later in his confession says to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, what does that command look like in daily life? Let's take a look at a couple of case laws that illustrate it. First, we read in Leviticus 19, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, Pay your employees. Pay the people you hire to do work. If you don't, you're keeping for yourself something that rightly belongs to them. That's theft. Second, we read in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. So if an ox is muzzled, then it can't eat any of the grain. But if it's not muzzled, then it can eat as it needs to, while it works. This is the same exact principle, but here it's applied to an animal. The grain belongs to the ox because he's earned it. He's done the work. So give him his wages. His grain. Don't muzzle him and steal his grain that he worked for. Now what happens when we get to the New Testament? A lot of people would think, well, we're still not supposed to steal, but we don't need to worry about the case law about oxen anymore, right? I mean, how would we apply that anyway? I don't have an ox, do you? But that's not how Paul treats it. Paul assumes that the case law about oxen still applies today. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he's arguing that the local church should pay their pastor and pay him a living wage. And in the middle of that argument, he says... Do I say these things on human authority? In other words, is this just human reason that I'm arguing from? Paul says, I'm appealing to a law. What's the basis of the law? And he's going to ground it in God himself. Okay, Does not the law, meaning the law of God, say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? David Dawn explains it this way. He says, this case law shows the great lengths to which the application of this law must go. 
If it is a sin to cheat an ox of its reward, then it must be a sin to cheat a man of his wages. It's theft in both cases. If God is concerned with stealing from an ox, how much more concerned will he be over cheating God's minister? Paul says the same thing again when he writes to Timothy. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, if you didn't have this case law, you might take the command, you shall not steal, and have a really narrow meaning for that. But the case laws show us that when God says you shall not steal, he even has in mind animals. And now we have a much clearer idea of the scope of the command. The case law helps us to put the commandment in concrete terms. And once we see how it applies to oxen, then we can easily determine how it applies to ministers or employees or children or lots of different circumstances. Hopefully that helps to illustrate how how God's ethical commandment, his law from how he's created the world, worked out in a particular case law, becomes then the example, the illustration that enables us to take his law and apply it in all the different circumstances we face in life. In Psalm 119, 39, this morning, we saw that the psalmist said to God, your rules are good. That applies to the whole law. The whole law is good. Why? Because the law is really just putting into words and statutes how God has designed the world to work. It's how the world really is. And since there's no realm of life that exists outside of God's authority, every area of life is subject to God's law. That means that our civil leaders are responsible to obey God's laws, to promote God's laws, to judge according to God's laws. And when you and I embrace this understanding of God's law, we will increasingly find the blessing of God for living his way. And we'll be able to say with the psalmist, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Lord, I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, cement these words into our hearts and minds. That we would be able to echo those words with the psalmist that we would see the beauty of your law, that we would see how it's an expression of how you've created and designed this world, that we would seek to understand it and work to apply it 
in all these different aspects of our lives, that we wouldn't think of your law as something that applies to just some portion of our life, but that we would understand that this is all of life, that you are the king of all of it. Teach us to obey you, to follow your rules and your statutes, that we would find blessing in that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.